Chapter 10 When we see the deadly and increasing repugnance excited in their posterity by these men, of gigantic stature, whom the glare of the thunderbolts too often shows besmeared with mud and livid with gore, when we consider the bold logic of their characteristic doctrines, and how soon these were made the occasion, or pretext for terror and counter-oppressions, we cannot wonder that their crimes, their violent, inequitous, inhuman measures should have left, if only upon the imagination of descendants, permanent, fatal, contagious marks which reveal themselves now in exaggerated imitations of their theory, now in narrow and pusillanimous fears. Eugenie Rendoul Introduction to Letters of Mademoiselle Roland, 1835 One summer evening, my professor and I sit together at the kitchen table, windows raised to invite a warm breeze. Another decisive scrabble victory for Babette spreads across the board in front of us. She smiles and stretches. You are a little bit curious to learn more of my history, are you not, Ross? I nod and begin clearing game tiles. A little, yeah. She leans back in her chair. Be kind and fetch me some bubble water then. I will tell you a tale. I rise and crack open another bottle of room temperature mineral water. It fizzes into a glass which I place before her. She drinks and sets the vessel down carefully, as if it might shatter. I will never understand this American obsession with making every liquid they ingest as cold as the Arctic. It can't be healthy. You have perhaps noticed the upstairs freezer does not contain a single ice toy? I threw them away long ago. She shudders as though this memory pains her. But enough of foolish American habits. You have lived here long enough. I feel comfortable with you. My story began in 1928, when a teenage girl wandered into a hospital in Yakima, Washington. She gave birth to a child, quite prematurely, you understand. The father's identity she didn't know or wouldn't say. Afterwards, she showed almost no interest in the infant. And of course, this adorable child was me. Babette beams. Well, it happened a woman named Germaine worked at this hospital as a nurse. She came from a wealthy family called the Bonafonts in southern France and had several years previously married an American man named Robert Brown. She fell in love with this tiny baby who nobody cared about. Once I grew healthy, Germaine snatched me from the bassinet and they caught the first train out of town. We traveled by ship back to France, but there must have been some disagreement as Robert Brown disappeared from the picture soon afterwards. Germaine raised me as her own, but of course the police knew who to look for and there was an international warrant for her arrest. So, as a child, I remember many unexpected moves. We traveled most often by train at night, and the rails clattering always put me to sleep. Such a reassuring sound. My mother would be quite high-strung and nervous, but as soon as we pulled away from the station, I could feel her body relax. I have loved trains ever since. While young, I discovered model railroads and kept a collection until recently, but now my hands are too shaky for things with small parts. Babette rises. Come to the study. I have some photographs from those times. I follow her, and my professor rummages around the bottom drawer of her small writing desk. She removes a battered file folder and tips out several black-and-white photographs. 
Here is Jamin in 1920. I take this brown-edged photo, holding it carefully and fixate on the image. An oval-faced woman with dark hair tied back and elegantly arched eyebrows faces the camera, her expression pleasant yet somehow calculating. She was beautiful. My professor chuckles. Even yet, her charms can affect one. Now, there was an individual who knew methods of getting what she wanted from the world. Not one too coarse, that is for sure. A woman who lived quite a mysterious life. My adopted mother grew up amidst complete luxury in southern France, but somehow ended up serving with the British army in 1919 as they crushed an Irish uprising. Here, this picture is from Mullinga Island, which was a flashpoint of the rebellion. The sepia print shows Germaine in military uniform, her bobbed hair peeking out from under a cap. She regards the camera seriously, a long cigarette holder cocked in one hand. Cursive script along the bottom reads, In His Majesty's Service. How on earth? I ask, incredulous. Babette shakes her head. My mother never spoke of such things. She treated her past as a sealed vault. I was truly amazed finding any photographs among her possessions after she died in 1983. If these were preserved as clues or mere nostalgia, I will never know. At any rate, here is one of her several years later in America, with Robert Brown and myself. In this picture, Germaine smiles with unguarded joy. She stands beside a careworn man in a dark suit. He towers over her, at least two heads higher. Germaine holds a tiny baby wrapped in white, its face barely visible. Brown looks gigantic, I observe. Babette nods. I never knew the man, but he stood well over six feet tall. My adopted mother clearly loved him, but never spoke of what happened between them. Ah, here is the last one I will show you for now. She passes me a close-up photo of her mother with the child on her lap. I blink in amazement. Though still an infant, this is clearly my professor. The round head and facial features are unmistakable, even seven decades later. Germaine gazes into her baby's face with pure adoration. Next, Babette leads me to the living room and gestures at a large oil canvas on the mantelpiece. It stretches four feet across, impossible to miss, and I'd often gazed at it curiously. In the center sprawls a grandiose white stone mansion with extravagant circular drive. The crescent staircase leads to its main entrance behind a large fountain surrounded by flowers. Seagulls circle above double chimneys. Toward the foreground, a moon-faced child in a white gown peers through large spectacles. Further back, three adults cluster underneath a tall lamppost. One man, in a white shirt, stands beside a brunette woman, and on her other side, an elderly gentleman wearing some kind of blue uniform strikes a dignified pose. Here is the Chateau de Lac, where we often lived. A beautiful old house built around 1760, I believe. This is the Saint-Jean region, quite close to the Mediterranean coast, near Narbonne. As you can see, I enjoyed an entirely high-class upbringing. But even for a member of the elite, I experienced quite an extraordinary childhood in rather unusual surroundings. We knew some of the best families in Spain and traveled there often, but developed connections with many wealthy Russian exiles as well. She sits down on a blue and green striped couch, but I can't take my eyes off the painting. This is you, then? I ask, pointing to the youth. Babette nods. In my best religious garments. 
I participated so enthusiastically in the rituals. It's complete rubbish, of course, but the genius of a Catholic education is that it never goes away. I would sooner chop off my right hand than abandon mass. Protestants foolishly never mastered guilt, though it's such a powerful tool. You, with your deplorable Presbyterian upbringing, couldn't possibly understand. I frown. What were you saying about Russian exiles? Yes, <laughs> them, she continues. Probably the most well-known was Prince Felix Yusupov. You know of him, who assassinated the monk Rasputin in 1916? He poisoned, shot, and finally drowned the man. She gestures at the painting again. He is there, in a white shirt, near the bottom of the stairs. Now talk about someone who led an interesting life. As a young man, Yusupov possessed incredible beauty, and sometimes dressed in women's attire for elegant balls and parties. This was just great fun, even back then, of course. You must understand, among the upper classes, a great deal of personal eccentricity is tolerated. Yusupov fled Russia after murdering Rasputin, but numerous powerful people supported this act, and he brought along his family plus much personal fortune. Soon afterward came the Russian Revolution, and many noble families who escaped later settled in southern France. Now, the master of the house was a man named Count Fouc de la Rente Tolezon. Fouc? I can't help from breaking in. What? Babette looks at me, confused. His name? That's French? Of course it is! Fouc! F-O-U-L-Q-U-E-S! My god, do they teach nothing in school these days? Anyhow, Fouc, whose name you despise, came from a very old and prominent family. During the First World War, he volunteered to fight, and along with two brothers, Honoré and Jules, joined the Air Force. All three were dashing, handsome, and rich, plus flying these incredible machines. Local girls never stood a chance, I'm sure. The war progressed, and these three brothers became increasingly famous. But then tragedy struck. Honoré was landing after some engagement when the plane flipped upside down and crashed. There existed little protection for pilots in those days, so with his head and torso completely exposed, Honoré died instantly. Oh, such a disaster! The funeral do mourners that filled the streets, a giant spectacle! Naturally, back then, French soldiers perished in battle by the score every minute. But these were not common people. When members of the nobility expire, everyone takes notice. The other two surviving brothers continued flying, but Fouc soon became ill from so much exposure to thin air and freezing cold. He spent time recovering, but ultimately wasn't strong enough to rejoin his squadron. Then things became more interesting. Family political contacts put him in touch with military officials at work on a plan for undermining the central powers. As you probably know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire contained many different ethnic groups and nationalities. They fought in alliance with Germany, but French tacticians suspected some might defect if properly motivated. These officials enlisted Fuchs' help visiting POW camps to identify Czech and Slovak soldiers captured on the battlefield. He offered freedom if they switched sides and joined France, promising political support for independence once the empire collapsed. Amazingly, he found success, though a young officer with little but the word of some distant bureaucrats for reinforcement. This episode really demonstrated Fuchs' charisma, even winning over veterans from the opposite side of a bitter war. 
But in fact, his promises held, and these men he recruited later formed the original army of Czechoslovakia. My professor shifts her weight and toys with a glass Canadian National Railway ashtray on the end table. I sit down beside her. <clears throat> Travels on this mission took him to Russia, where he became close with Prince Kotschube, the man in the blue uniform. It was through him Fouk met his future wife, Princess Zenaïde Demidov. There she is, too, standing near the mall behind me. This seemed a splendid social match. Fouk and his wife Zenaïde, both young, beautiful, and rich, now combined fortunes. However, following Russia's revolution in 1917, that country sank into political turmoil and upper-class members found themselves harshly persecuted. Suddenly, instead of a union consolidating mutual wealth, Fuchs' marriage looked more like an international rescue operation. Zenaid lost all her Ukrainian estates and most of the family fortune, plus now came with a whole host of relatives, all impoverished former nobles. Fook didn't turn them away. He could afford providing their accustomed food, housing, and lavish lifestyles, at least short term. Remember, nobody thought Bolshevism would endure. You know, I am sure that once the war ended, every victor immediately invaded Russia, their former ally, even the American army. That fact we don't teach in school, but you can be sure they remember. Just a brief, uncomfortable period, so many people supposed, except that the Russian revolutionaries persisted and defeated all their enemies. While my sympathies are very much in concert with the upper classes of society, really, the aristocracy deserved their doom. Even by the early 20th century, many peasants lived scarcely better than their ancestors in the Middle Ages. The system could simply not endure. What a surprise for Fouk, I exclaim. No worse timing to marry a Russian princess. Babette nods. Very true. But they made the best of things and soon enough started a family, having two daughters. But while still infants, they both fell ill and died. Oh, an absolute tragedy. You may remember, in the years following World War I, a terrible influenza plague spread around the world, killing millions. I don't know if that is what struck down the girls, but so many lost loved ones in those days. This completely devastated Zenaid. She ordered the children embalmed and placed in glass coffins full of formaldehyde in the family crypt, just fifty yards away from the Chateau du Lac. Over time, it became clear that Zenaïde's fortune was lost for good. Her relatives continued visiting, shattered economically, but with expensive tastes well intact. Fouke absorbed their additional expenses through the 1920s, though his fortune took heavy losses. Midway through that decade, the two finally conceived the boy who lived. They named him Fouke Honoré, after his deceased uncle, though everyone called him Fouquet. That just means little Fouke. Then, around 1930, a new relative returned from America, Fuchs' cousin, Germaine Bonafont, with her adorable child in tow. As I mentioned, she feared detection, so we moved locations often. My adopted family owned property all over Spain as well as France, so I soon spoke Spanish quite naturally. And they had political connections there, you know, of the very best sort, with General Franco. Babette pauses. Now, there was a talented leader. He kept Spain out of the Second World War, played each side for every advantage, and then remained in power for another thirty years. Who couldn't recognize the greatness of such a man? She waits, daring me to disagree. But George Orwell is your hero also, I interject. 
In my professor's library, Orwell's books occupy a section of honor. And he fought against Franco in the Spanish Civil War. That is true, Babette agrees. You may read about Catalonian anarchists, and they seem quite admirable. But could they have defeated Franco on their own? Stalin's communists were the only force organized enough to do so. And had they succeeded, would more red terror have benefited the Spanish people? Remember, I live just across the border. We heard many accounts of their atrocities from war refugees. I bite my lip silently. You see, my family understood how to recognize authority and stay on its good side. That is a lesson some of us haven't learned yet. Why, only a few weeks ago, you and some others were thrown out of the Oregonian's office downtown while distributing anti-capitalist leaflets, correct? At this, I grin and nod. Of course, you are absolutely correct to be angry, she continues. The world is terribly unjust, but being right is no guarantee of survival, and that is what counts. Do you know who my true hero is? It is Joseph Fouché of the French secret police. He served under Jacobin, Napoleonic, and Bourbon regimes in the late 18th century. One might say, arrest Catholic authorities, or next, defend the monarchy. But he did his duty, made sure not to become too compromised by any one side. And do you know what? He survived them all and lived out his days in great comfort. Babette's eyes flash. So, during these early years, my mother did all she could to prevent discovery. Of course, the authorities expected a kidnapped girl. Well, clever woman she was, it made sense raising me so that I might pass as either gender. She even discovered that for a little extra money, I could be enrolled in Catholic school as a male. As I mentioned before, much eccentricity is tolerated among the upper classes. I wonder what Felix Yusupov thought of that scheme. Oh, I remember often sitting on his lap. He had terrible breath and smelled so strongly of cigars. During this time, I learned many lessons that stayed with me. You know perhaps how skeptical I can be. Well, my late grandfather was known as a real hero, a general in the Franco-Prussian War. We often visited the town where my grandmother lived, and a statue stood honoring him. It depicted a stoic pose, one arm held out defiantly, as if he cried, They shall not pass. All society showed my grandmother great deference because of her late husband and his boyvoy. Once I grew older, I became interested in history and curious about more details. It sounded so dramatic. However, researching my grandfather, I discovered he had indeed served as a general, but only in charge of rations and clothing supplies, a sort of grandiose quartermaster. Furthermore, he never came near a battle or ventured into the least danger. Such deception filled me with complete outrage. Then, a woman, who hadn't heard of our family's illustrious past, came to one of my grandmother's tea parties. Everyone fell all over themselves informing her about my grandfather, who sounded more impressive with every retelling. At last, they came to the statue, and how it memorialized his most famous exploit. Arm held up against the savage Huns, you know. I couldn't resist, and shouted out, Yes, indeed, his hand raised up measuring a soldier for a new uniform. Oh, that made my grandmother furious. With some effort, Babette raises herself from the couch and heads for the stairs. She favors the iron rail, moving slowly upward. I follow close behind. In her bedroom, below the only window, sits a large wooden trunk. Ornate yellow characters spell M. Bonifant, officier. 
My grandfather's military kit, she says. Her wrinkled hands trail across the faded letters. Of course, few soldiers traveled in such style. Oh, but you may find these of interest. From the middle drawer of her dresser, she pulls out a cloth bundle. My professor unwinds the fabric and removes a pair of brass binoculars. I examine them, then raise her blinds. The magnification is low, but even under dim evening light, our neighbor's flower beds focus into clear resolution. I give them back. Thank you for showing me. What a treasure. Babette smiles widely. Then you might appreciate some other relics. I follow her into the hall and toward the guest room. This chamber is incredibly grand, with a large brass bed, gas chandelier converted to electricity, and several beautifully upholstered low chairs. On one wall hangs a large Rubenesque nude, and beside that the portrait of a priest, who grimaces as if dismayed by such fleshly display. An ornate full-length mirror on a stand reflects us from the opposite corner. My arm brushes against narrow stripes of blue and green velvet wallpaper. The furniture in this room is all French Second Empire from the time of Napoleon III. These low chairs make it easier for a woman bound up in her corset to breathe. This is a boudoir. It means a pouting room. Don't you wish you spoke French? The language of God? She leans close and adopts a clandestine tone. Actually, Ross, were I dictator of the world, I would declare English abolished and sentence those who insisted on speaking it to be shot. Do you know why? Because it makes French look bad. Truly, their uncomplicated grammar, their absence of gender and class distinctions, your language is structured with a simplicity I reluctantly admire. Proper French isn't even spoken now, even in France. It's too difficult, all the complicated forms and tenses. She raises her voice again. So you see, that is why English must be destroyed. Babette turns and motions at a small octagonal frame on the wall. Three military medals hang pressed against blue fabric under glass. She points to the largest in the middle. I squint and read, République Française. 1870, within a wreath of green oak leaves. That is my grandfather's Legion of Honor medal, she informs me. And on the right is his Medaille Militaire, I suppose something like a good conduct badge. Now, to the left is my uncle's Croix de Guerre from the First World War. He was captured quite early on and spent years in Ingolstadt Fortress, a punishment camp for troublesome officers. But there's more. Come downstairs. We descend, and Babette points out the corroded rifle over her front door. This is a Model 98 Mauser rifle, the main infantry weapon of German soldiers in the First World War. Look at that bayonet! What a fearsome sight! See how the breech is shut? That small lever pushed far left means it is ready to fire, but it never will again. The bell is completely choked with rust. As a young girl, I once explored with my cousin in some forested part of France, and we came upon this firearm in the underbrush. It must have moldered away almost twenty years by then. We dragged the rifle back with us, and it eventually ended up in some relative's basement. Ages ago, they found the thing, and I brought it back to America. Now, come along. I follow her into the study. She runs a finger along several oversized books on a shelf, each titled Le Panorama de la Guerre. I open one at random and am instantly impressed. My ignorance of French is not an issue. Stark photographs, melancholy paintings, and detailed engravings fill every page. 
This is a work of art, I marvel. Yes, Babette replies. And it's quite remarkable how they were put together. The publisher compiled war news and hired talented illustrators to put out regular issues about the size of a magazine. People would purchase them as they became available, with the idea one could have it all bound up for free if you bought the whole set. Of course, no one suspected it would at last fill seven volumes back in 1914. She pulls out the first book and extracts two black-and-white photos. The first is undated and shows a trim middle-aged man in military uniform, his dense mustache waxed and jaunty. By the second, marked 1916, gray hairs escape from under his peaked cap. He now wears a thick wool greatcoat with white numbers on its collar. The black mustache is no longer upturned. This second picture my uncle sent of himself from the camp. Now, his wife, who possessed a vicious sense of humor, collected these cereals avidly. After the armistice in 1918, she made them a coming-home present. Didn't he want to catch up on all the war he missed while interred? She hounded him to read, so he started, but soon died from a heart attack, my aunt said, in bed with one volume open before him. She claimed to have marked the page, but I never found it. Babette looks at a clock on the wall, mounted beside her giant topographical map of Canada. It's almost 10 p.m. Of course, the First World War is almost forgotten by Americans, which in many ways makes sense, as this country only entered during the final period and suffered hardly any casualties compared with other nations. But at the time, it raised such public fervor. Do you realize here in Portland, ordinary people found it intolerable living in neighborhoods with Germanic names? And since numerous early Oregon pioneers emigrated from German-speaking parts of Europe, there were many. The old streets, Bismarck, Frankfurt, Karl, even those named after famous poets like Schiller and Goethe, were all changed to more acceptable anglonyms. One exception was Liebe Street, you know, just a little north of us here. The city council couldn't manage that, since it turned out old Mr. Liebe was still alive and a perfectly respectable member of society. The fact this word means love must have made it somewhat easier for society to tolerate. I suppose I will never understand the depths of human hatred, our compulsion to wipe away an enemy's culture completely. But now it is late, and I must retire. If you like, I will recount more of my youth some other time.